This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Maggie. My name is Brian. And today we have a very special guest with us. His name is George Chow. And George is the founder and CEO of Uniworld Omniport and is an expert in consumer product development and direct-to-consumer e-commerce. George founded his first e-commerce brand, BBO Poker Tables, in 2006 and is the leader in the poker and home gaming niche and later started Omniport Consulting in 2014 to help brands and companies create scalable products and sell more effectively to customers through e-commerce. In his career, George has developed products with and for many prominent brands spanning a wide range of product disciplines. George, welcome to the show. Yeah, George. Happy to have you Thanks here. I want to throw out that George and I are actually in the same fraternity back in undergrad. Wow. Super happy to have a former alumni that's so successful in the show. You know, without, without that connection, I don't think I'd be in the uh, Asian Hustle Network because, you know, funny story, um, when I think the pretty early in the uh, infancy of AHN, I started getting some uh, fraternity buddies pinging me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was like uh, Mark Weber and Mark Chen. Um, it's like, join this AHN thing, join this thing. And, you know, I'm busy. It's another Facebook thing that popped up. Like, what the hell is this? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I ain't got time for this. But they're like, oh, LTD's uh, running it, you know, our fraternity. And it's like, just like, you know, most Asians go, oh, I got, I got a connection to, to you know, the, the founders. Then it was, it was all love after that. So awesome. I'm super happy to uh... shout out to have met through the group and, you know, figure out that our alumni are doing so, so well, you know? Yeah. So let's jump right into it. George, can you tell us a little bit about your background, you know, where you grew up, where you were born, what your family situation was like, you know, were they a very traditional Asian family or were they, you know, laid back? Tell us more. Well, uh, thank you for that. And um, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I was born in Taiwan. Uh, and I was there until I was uh, eight years old, which is like first grade. Uh, so my Chinese, although I won't get lost, is not like really super awesome, right? But um, my both my grandparents, my mom's side, my dad's side, were from um, the uh, the KMT, you know, nationalist um, uh, government coming over from China during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, so. You know, I grew up in Taiwan, and um, when I was eight, we moved to my my dad moved us to California. Wow! So uh, when we came here, we went to um, you know, we we landed in Daly City, which was you know still pretty Asian, so it was all right. Um, you know, back in Taiwan, I was I was just a a young kid running around, friends, carefree. You know, the Asian Asian culture, just you know, running around. All, all life was good. It was fun. All right, but. Once I got to um, California, Daily City is all right because it's it's there's a lot of Asians that are still kind of 
you know, fit in. But um, in sixth grade, um, my parents, my dad decided to move us to Antioch, California, which is um, predominantly more, more white um, at that time Mm -hmm. in the uh, mid nineties. And that was when, when I I first got a a unique, um, you know, sort of sense of what the U S is like. Mm-hmm. Right. You get, you get a lot of a uh, little racism, a little, you know, um, which I thought was super strange. Right. Because um, growing up in Taiwan, it's well just a kid running around. It was, it was awesome. Right. But um, you go to school here and it's kind of like, well, I don't know if being super nice is like the right like way here. You, you sort of have to be like a little tougher mm-hmm. here. Right. Or else they're just going to, you know, sort of try to bully you and try to sort of power move these things like that. So I distinctly remember in seventh grade, you know, like enough was enough. I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't think being nice is sort of the, the way to get by here as an immigrant, you know? Um, So one day I I just made, I made up in my mind, you know, I had enough, right? There was, I remember there's very vividly, there's this kid, his name is Craig. He was like, you know, one of the biggest bullies there. And my intent for that day, I've had enough, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to punch Craig right in his face. That was literally <laughs> what I said when I went to school that day. And it was pretty funny. I went to the, to the schoolyard and um, I was, I was looking for Craig, mm-hmm. right? And before I found Craig, another kid, right? That was also sort of, you know, bully, like ran, I ran into him first, right? And I was like, Hey, where's Craig? And he, he said something really racist. It was, you know, like childhood uh, stuff, right? Like play, playground stuff. He's like, you know, hey, I, I don't know, but, you know, why don't you get out of here before I shove some chopsticks up your ass or something like that, right? This is like seventh grade, right? Yeah. So now immediately my focus is I don't, I don't remember Craig anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So I turn around and I hit this guy. I just remember him, his shoes just flying off, right? And... It was a big like thing in the school. I, I just had enough, right? Like that's kind of what I learned from, you know, Cal- the U.S. It's a different different world, right? So enough is enough. Um, it, what was really funny about that story is actually after word got around, you know, that this happened, Craig comes up at the end of the day and was like, "Hey, um, do you want to be friends? Because I, I heard what happened. I don't really want none of that, right?" <laughs> so that was the first. You know, why I bring that up is because that's sort of to me as an immigrant, that's sort of the a vivid uh, memory of what how you have to be sort of in the U.S. as you go about your, um, you know, your business and, and, and how if you want to make something of yourself, you do have to be firm. You do have to be strong. And there has to be that line that you go, hey, mm-hmm, right. So that um, was sort of childhood growing up. I played a lot of baseball. Um, I went to UC Irvine, which is where we were in the same fraternity, um, mm-hmm. although I was a couple of years older than you. Um, after that, um, I lived, I spent some time in China. Um, and that's where I really saw a couple things. Um, international sourcing and manufacturing was just going over there. It was 2004, 2005, right? So everything was starting to get made in Asia. And also um, e-commerce was just starting to come up. Right. All right, so that was like eBay eBay was like starting to sell cars. Um, that was a big deal. Amazon still sold books. Right, that was a thing right before Amazon was Amazon. Yeah. So really, it was really intriguing to me that, um, well, what if I 
really learn these two things that were emerging, which is scalable international manufacturing and also e-commerce, right? Those are two things of value. Mm-hmm. And it just interested me. So that's where I started focusing it and honing um, understanding around, right? So after that, I came home 2006, um, started my first company, um, built that up to a couple million dollars a year. Um, just the e-commerce side, it's been, it's been multi-million dollars for um, quite some years now. Um, mm-hmm. And but in 2016, 17, um, I realized that I didn't have all of the uh, firepower that I need to, to make it to the next level, right? It's like a couple million dollars a year. It's great. But I was having issues in terms of building the culture that I wanted, mm-hmm. right? So, so because of uh, several reasons, I think we'll probably get into that a little bit more in the podcast, but um, I went back to school, um, went through the Stanford Executive Leadership Program, uh, which is an amazing sort of one-year uh, program um, after you've, you've so, sort of cut your teeth uh, in entrepreneurship to really understand how to build that bottom-up leadership and, and what um, organizational culture and, and how to do all that, you know, organizational building. Right. So that really sort of catapulted my understanding of what it is that I wanted to do and how to achieve that. Um, and um, yeah, that kind of brings us up to today. And somewhere along, along the line, I create, I started a um, consulting company, helping people make and make products um, and, and sell more things via e-commerce. So I'm a little ADD. So I, I like to chase shiny things. Mm-hmm. Right. So I like to solve problems, shiny things. So I'm kind of all over the place in terms of what, what I do, but the general, I guess, um, you know, similarities and everything that I do is just, it's cool, fun, interesting products made, you know, if you can think it, we mm-hmm. want to make it sort of happen and be. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a really great story too, especially about your childhood and being mm-hmm. strong and firm. Yeah. I could totally relate to that story as well. I mean, I had a lot of incidents where people just picked on me and I, I said, one day this is enough. Like, I'm just going to stand up for myself and be a stronger person. And I can't understand exactly what you mean by having it sort of influenced my adult life as well. Like I tend to like not be pushed around often, especially in the business world. Like people like to push you around because of your age, your ethnicity, your size, any anything they can to like size you up, you know? Mm-hmm. And you have to stay firm, especially for someone like Maggie too. She's very firm. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Like I could, yeah, I could attest to that too. I was bullied too. And then, you know, that was due to my size. And at this at a certain day, like you just, know that you've had enough and you're just fed up. And I think that trickles down to Mm -hmm. a lot of your present mentality and, you know, how you shape yourself to be. So good job for you for standing up. I'm, you know, incredibly inspired by that. Yeah, and going back to your story too, like, that's amazing foresight. You know, most Mm -hmm. of you back in college don't look at how the world works. They look at what's present. You know, they look at like, okay, what's fun for me right now? Like, can I go to a nightclub? Can I drink more? They don't start looking at the world like you did like you, you you saw these emerging trends you're like yeah. oh wow they're great but the key difference is you didn't let them you didn't just put in the background like most people mm-hmm. you, you thought about it and then you took action you overcome analysis paralysis especially being so young and in the asian fraternity too like that that's amazing like how'd you overcome that analysis paralysis and one day you woke up and you're like hey guys i'm gonna start this e-commerce business and 
let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And how, yeah, did agree. Your, how did your parents react to that? Because I know, you know, you went to UC Irvine and they probably thought you were going to go through this plan to get a job or, or something like that, you know? So sure, what sure. was their reaction and mm-hmm. how did you come over, uh, overcome analysis? So, yeah. So that's a great question. And, um, background i come from three generations of entrepreneurs so they weren't they weren't so surprised right so my my grandfather um had a successful business in taiwan in terms of a military radar uh, because of his military background and um my dad is through and through an entrepreneur so i was actually really bored at uc irvine because i i could not wait to go and do whatever it is that that i wanted to do right the i was a i was just a c student i just whatever it took just to kind of get by partied a lot had a lot of fun but i knew that hey once the chains were off yo it's it's game on right so i was lucky enough to spend a year after college in beijing and that was like 2005 right and that was just in beijing was the freaking wild west it was bananas right the the renminbi was the exchange was eight to one so for eight, one us dollar you had eight renminbi dollars mm-hmm. and at that point if you had a us passport you could not get arrested i shit you not right you literally <laughs> could do whatever you want you wave that passport and they go whoa right so but the result of that was everybody that was in beijing at that time this is three years before the olympics right so like it was the wild west and everybody was entrepreneurial everybody was looking for that angle they just didn't know what it was going to be but it was going to be something huge you could you could sense it right there was so much energy there right and and luckily enough i'm always one of those people that like i i naturally have a problem solving mind right so and if i if i latch onto a problem that you go hey this is a complicated problem i bet you can't solve it then then my comp- competitive streak kind of kicks in and then, you know, I go, oh, I bet you I can. So, you know, I, I will think about it nonstop, you know, for weeks until I give you four different ways to solve it and go, ta-da, right? So in Beijing, that was what was going on at the time. It was um, uh, scalable outsourcing or right, scalable manufacturing, and it was e-commerce, mm-hmm. right? So those are two big enough problems to sink my teeth into. And, and when you know, we, we identified and me and my group of friends, you know, start identifying, Hey, this is kind of where the thing is going. I could not stop thinking about that for like weeks on end. Right. And that just sort of like lit that pilot flight that, you know, basically everything snowballed out of, mm-hmm. you know, and Maggie, one more thing to go back to your original point about bullying. I think there's one thing that is very um, important um, that I've sort of, and it's not my saying, but it's, it's, you know, you want to be kind, but you don't want to be nice, right? right? In terms of strength, mm-hmm. right? Like nice is a pushover. Kind is, is, you know, you're, you're strong and yeah. you're like, right. So you want to be, that's, that's my motto. I want to be kind, right? I'm not an asshole, right? At, by any means, but you're not going to push me around. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Love that mindset. Yeah. Going back to like, like, that's pretty great that, you know, you came from three generations of entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's amazing. It's awesome to hear, you know, a lot of people 
especially with my parents, I had to overcome a lot of barriers. I mm-hmm. told them that I'm going to leave my job. And they're like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was unhappy. They're like, what's that? <laughs> you know? What's that? <laughs> what's that? <laughs> yeah. A lot of them are like, what's entrepreneurship? You know, a lot of yeah. Asian parents, they don't know what that is. And mm-hmm. they, a lot of them immigrated here so that we could find a stable job. So I'm really happy to hear, you know, you came from an entrepreneurial background, your family did as well. So, you know, you already had that foundation where you had that support from your parents. So, you know, going into e-commerce, would love to know, you know, what are some mistakes that you did that now looking back, you could tell yourself, hey, like, I wish I knew this. You can trace it back time. a bit too and talk yeah. through your entire journey. Like when yeah. you started, how you raised money, how you made money, how you hired your first employee. Yeah. You and hear everything. Yeah. Some of the, you know, hurdles and mistakes that you did that, mm-hmm. you know, our listeners could learn from in e-commerce. Definitely. Um, so, great question. And this is, this is a, a pretty, pretty fun one. There's a lot of like, you know, being in e-commerce for 14 years, there's tons of stories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been lucky enough to sort of conquer a, a niche, which is the poker table niche, which is a very odd niche, but um, thoroughly enjoyable and, and much uh, fun going through it. So I started the company with, um, once I, once I realized th- these are the two things that I wanted to uh, do. Uh, so I'm still in China. These are two things I want to do. And the next week I'm talking with my buddies. We had just finished drinking the night before we were partying a lot at that time. Like we were in the club, maybe like four times a week, something crazy. So afterwards we were like, e-commerce, what do we, what do we do? You can literally do anything. Uh-huh. Right. And we were like, well, you know, how about furniture? Oh man, that's heavy to do. Uh, you know, how about paintball? How about bicycles? Like literally it was just like a list of interesting things to do. And finally I was like, Hey, yo, um, I play a lot of poker in, in college. And my buddy was like, I like poker. I like, <laughs> I like poker too. Yeah. Let's, let's go do that. Right. So it, it was the sort of the height of the poker boom back in 2005. We want to do something fun. Uh, so I came home once we sort of honed in on what it is that we wanted to do. I came home. I was like, Hey, I think my time here is done. I'm going home. I'm going to start this company. Um, I checked my bank account. I got $2,000 in, in cash. All right. I'm 24 years old. I come home and I connect with um, a factory in China um, buying, you know, poker chips and, and small accessories, whatever I can buy. You know, it, it, I had to go through a handful of factories to find one that would even entertain a $2,000 PO. Mm-hmm. Right. And when I find, I was so excited, right? Like send this random company money. I don't know due diligence. I don't know contracts. I don't know none of this <laughs> stuff, right? I was like, yo, you're going to sell me stuff? I got money. Bow, right? So I, I hit them with some money and stuff comes in. And at this point, I don't know really like, you know, I know I want to get into e-commerce, but I, I'm not sure. I don't program. I don't code. You know, it's like, okay, eBay, maybe it's Craigslist, right? Just to get started. I would start at the, um, the San Jose swap meet to sell poker chips. Oh. Right. But the, the day, first lesson I got is, all right, you better learn some quality control because all the inventory, the chips that they sold me that like these stickers on it, right. For the denominations, yeah. um, the stickers, I think they just sent me some like, like fucked up inventory that they had, <laughs> right. Every chip, both sides, the stickers would fall off. Right. So <laughs> I'm like, I gotta do this. I gotta do two things. Right? I gotta sell it to you. And I'd be like, Yo, Brian, hold on one second. Turn around, fucking glue these things on. Give <laughs> you a set, right? So, uh, as humble as you can imagine is sort of how how we started. Um, we started then going, hey, you know, selling these small accessories um, 
you know, really is difficult because there's a lot of competition. The, the barrier to entry is pretty low, right? So we, I, I was looking around and I was like, you know what? Um, poker tables is interesting because at that time, there was two types of poker tables in the market. It was either super baller, uh, handmade in uh, the U.S., like five, ten, ten thousand bucks per table, or there was like cheap Chinese import mm-hmm. poker tables, right, for like two hundred bucks. And there was this just a huge void. It, it's it was obvious, like, dude, why is nobody doing this, mm-hmm. right? Nobody was doing it because it's fucking hard, right? Mm-hmm. It's not easy because once you start getting into um, sort of freight logistics, yeah. right, and operation, the, uh, the opex of of uh, doing freight poker tables is very difficult, right? Mm-hmm. To try to do it at any sort of scale, mm-hmm. right? So I finally get enough money from you know selling little things, and I put I go all in on some poker tables, mm-hmm. right? So I go I find another factory I don't know them, right? I shoot over 10,000 bucks. That's like everything that I made. Yeah. Right. And I wait 60 days. Now imagine I had just all the money I'd made. I threw it back in and I, I went in on new products with a new factory that I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. What are the chances that things are fucked up here? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Not hundred percent, right? So much <laughs> Not hundred percent, right? So, you did it twice uh, too. You gave all your two thousand dollars or you learn, savings, and then <laughs> threw your ten thousand dollars to this factory that you didn't even know of. Right. So, so I wait sixty days. I'm like, I'm like so excited, and the day comes, the trailer comes, and tows this twenty foot container, and we drop it. I remember it was seven p.m. It was already dark. It was me and my uncle. Uh, he was just around, and I didn't realize that unloading a twenty foot. I didn't even think about this. Uh, unloading a twenty foot container full of poke tables. Uh-huh is not easy right there's a lot a lot of moving movement shit around right so i was so excited we finally got to the end i opened the box and it was trash it was so trash right so i was so upset i was like i was furious i was like oh shit my company is is over before it even started Mm -hmm. right oh shit i was pissed and i went i went to my dad and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to call him right now. And I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to curse him out. And I'm going to just, you know, and my dad's very calming presence, right? He's a very logical person. So am I, he goes, yeah, you could do that. You're not going to get your money back. <laughs> <laughs> or you can buy a ticket and you can go there and you can teach them how to make what you want. Mm-hmm. Right, so this is 2007 ish. Um, so next week I was in Ningbo, China. Right, <laughs> so I walk off the plane and I see this little, like, little pudgy, you know, like Asian business owner coming in. Young dude, young dude, couldn't have been, you know, couldn't have been 30 years old. Right, mm-hmm. carrying his little, like, man purse. Right, he's like running up to me. He's like, George. He's like, holds out his hand, right? And I grab his hand, I just crush it. I literally just crush his hand. I him both Did you send me that container of shit? Right? And then and I grabbed him. I was like, get in the car. Right? And I spent a week at the factory redesigning every component of it because what I learned was, right, yes, they make it in China, mm-hmm. but they don't play poker in China. They make a thing because they know that it'll make money and it looks like a thing. 
right? Unless you actually go in, do the due diligence and make the product your own, mm -hmm. right? You could never depend on somebody and their iteration, their idea of it, right? Right. And, and go, oh, yeah, that's going to be good. There's a 100% chance that's going to fail, right? So in 2007, BBO Poker Tables became the first company to have um, products that were designed correctly, mm -hmm. but leveraging the scalability. And then as we started developing e-commerce, um, kind of grew market share. Um, and we started figuring out the operational excellence component of it, which is how to get freight products across the U.S. quickly. Mm -hmm. Then we added customizations. We added dining tops that you can hide your poker table. It turns into a dining table, right? So all these different things allowed us to then start getting that momentum and, and getting that distribution up. And now today, um, this little brand um, with all those crazy stories is the official uh, poker table brand of the World, uh, World Poker Tour, the wow. Golden State Warriors. Um, we've been at sort of every black tie event that um, you can imagine. and if, if you play, if you see a poker table in a home that's not in a casino, there's a great chance that I sold it to you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of the first company, right? And from now on, but the problem with poker, it's a very small market. So now you have to talk about, well, what's sort of next, right? And the next step is really home gaming. Mm -hmm. And the timing couldn't be better because everyone's stuck at home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. What's, what's your option to, to be on Instagram and scrolling all day or, or do you figure out a way where you can actually connect with your family, with your friends, with your kids mm -hmm. right now, that second proposition sounds pretty good, right? Right. Exactly. So that's where we're kind of going in that the home gaming space, right? Cause we've already done what we can in the poker space. Now it's like kind of growing the product development. Definitely. And, I love that story too that you just told it. It's basically business fundamentals. It's like you never assume anything. Mm -hmm. You know, you can never ever assume mm -hmm. in business. Once you assume, you lose a lot of money. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. if you're, you know, in poker or myself in real estate. Mm -hmm. I assume that the contractor is going to do it right. I come there, I'm like, all right, as well, I wasn't imagining. Or, you know, exactly, yeah. Why didn't we come up with the same idea? <laughs> you know, like, okay, you just put the bathroom titles, tiles in there. You go there, it's like, wait a minute. Why is it like laid out horizontally instead of vertically? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. You're like, oh, and then you have to tear it all out and then like redo it. It costs you a hell of money and time to do yeah. it. Yeah. You, know, you know what What that is? That is, um, and I tell my uh, team this a lot, especially mm -hmm. my management team, it's, um, it's head in, hands out, right? Okay. So you don't want to do it. But you got to have your head in. You got to know what's going on on every single piece. But you can't do it because if you do it, which what actually happens is you, you take, you know, somebody's opportunity of learning away. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. right? Yeah. So you couldn't do it for them, but you need to know what the hell's going on. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. And your dad also gave really, really good advice yeah. too, you know. Had you just cursed them out, that's very unconstructive. <laughs> you went there and became constructive, you know. You spent mm -hmm. some time there and really got it down to the core and got it right. Yeah. And that story really, really reminds me of like Nike and how they started the shoe dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shoe dog is a great, great book. I, I know very similar how Phil's like, yeah, I put in some orders in Japan and he came back and it was like, not the type of shoes <laughs> I thought it was going to be. So I flew to Japan and taught them like how to like make shoes the way Nike makes it. And that really reminds me of your story too. 
it's like the the difference is that their their market scope is like a trillion dollars and mine is x you know mine is tiny <laughs> so you took matters into your own hands and you know your the, the advice that your dad gave you goes such a long way you know and i'd also like to point out that you know when the idea came up about you going into poker chips and poker tables mm-hmm. it was just a mere like I like poker. I like, I like playing poker. You know, I think a lot of people get caught up of like, what is my passion? What am I in love with? Mm-hmm. What am I really knowledgeable or skilled about? Right. And people get tripped up about that because they're like, I need to be really skilled at a certain mm-hmm. industry in order for me to succeed in it. Right. But you just, you and your partner just pretty much said, I like poker and that there's an opportunity right there. All right. And you open those doors for yourself. You don't need to be skilled at a certain industry. Right. There's like, e-commerce drop shipping you don't need to know you know every single fact about that particular product but you kind of you know made that opportunity for yourself you have so to like incredible. what you work on yeah to be honest it can be about anything you know as long as you have yeah. passion for it, you're gonna yeah. find ways to like make it work and for example very off topic but you know people who who like to eat so they make videos of themselves eating mukbang you know yeah, yeah. very yeah. simple because yeah. they just like that topic yeah. and it's something that we just have to pursue pick something that you that you don't mind doing every day yeah. and make a business out of it. Absolutely. And, you know, when I say we, it's, um, I use, always refer to the team that I, I, I sort of work with. Um, you know, I do much prefer not to have like business partners. I like to be able to like do or die based on my own decisions, mm-hmm. right? The accountability component of it. And I think, um, you know, the, at the end of the day, it's, it's really about creating value it's value creation right and um yes you might love a thing but if you're not focused on how can i bring value to whatever exchange or whatever situation that i'm doing right then you're going to be like sort of chasing this thing that's hard to find but if you just go hey i bring value into any Mm -hmm. um you know exchange or any transaction or any thing that i do now now that's where success finds you right it's the opposite Definitely. way around yeah. and it just goes back to like it's funny how when you want something to work and you want it bad enough the universe sort of just helps you get mm-hmm. to that goal it just subconsciously you just start seeing opportunities that you're like oh, wait a minute if i talk to this person if i connect with this this person if i learn this and that this will get me to my goal and that's mm-hmm. crazy how the universe works you know so along your real estate journey like you met a lot of people that sort of just help nudge you in the right direction and just help you accomplish your goals. Yeah, I, I absolutely. Um, I think, you know, in my, in my entrepreneurship, um, journey when I was, when I went into it, when I was 24, I was this kid that wanted to prove something. I was a single person trying to prove a thing along the way you pick up, uh, you know, a team. Right. And I think I was, um, a little bit too young to understand sort of how to lead that correctly. Cause I mean, you, when you first start, you start picking some people up on like Craigslist and you know, whatever, just people that like help to get a thing done. You need somebody in the warehouse. All right, boom, plug that, plug that. But at some point, and for me, it was like just at like 10, 10 people, right? It became the transition became from me trying to prove that I can do this e-commerce thing into, Oh shit, I need to start being a leader now. And what does that mean? Cause that's a complete different skill set than than you trying to do a thing like well yeah mm-hmm. right and it's like that's i think for people starting out um i think the best advice i can give them is like hey there's going to be a transition if you do it successfully and you start to see millions come through and you you start needing 
to scale up, you're going to run into culture problems, mm-hmm. right? Unless you know exactly how to align and set the culture of your team. And I needed to go through that. Mm-hmm. So at 32, uh, the company was a couple, already a couple million dollars a year. And I was, my consulting business was taken off. Like I personally could generate, you know, I can tell you exactly how much I can generate as a human being by myself doing that top down business model. It's 5 million bucks. Mm-hmm. Right, it's 5 million bucks a year. Right. And that's it. And I, I you'll have a nervous breakdown. Right. And, and cause everybody's asking you for a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I right? And, and that is just like not capable of scaling. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I was 32, I was like, I really looked in the mirror. I was like, man, I really don't like what I'm walking into every day. So I had, you know, 10, 12 employees at that time. I'm walking into work and I, I'm just not, I'm not feeling it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, man, I kind of, I kind of hate what I built, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm, I'm like, I'm not sure if I have the right tools and skill set for this. And that's when um, I joined um, a CEO peer group. Mm. Right. So, so this, this is super important, right? So, I, I, I'm part of a Vistage. Um, they're the largest CEO peer group um, in the world, right? And and all of a sudden now, imagine this, I'm like 31, 32 years old, and now I'm surrounded in a group of 20 CEOs, minimum company size, 5 million, up to quarter billion dollar companies. These dudes are and gals are much older, much more seasoned. And now I got to like learn from these people. I have to get my thoughts validated by these dudes. They're just like, what do you, what, what do you, why? Right. And just like peering into and ripping what you think is right apart. Mm-hmm. Right. And then after that, I um, did the uh, Stanford uh, executive graduate uh, program. And only through that did I start understanding what sort of bottom up like leadership was. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually I had to, I had to nuke my entire company. I had to strategic, I had to come up with, Hey guys, here's, here's the blueprint. Here's the goal. Here's how we're going to operate. Here's our organizational design, um, you know, game plan on how we're going to run our company. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing is when you implement, uh, you know, systems that, that, uh, promote accountability, mm-hmm what happens is the non-accountable people, they're really allergic to that, right? So two things will happen. They'll either quit or things start getting very uncomfortable for them that, you know, they'll, they'll end up leaving by themselves, which both options is fine. Mm -hmm. Right. It's all good. Right. So then we, I staffed and, and started aligning um, the culture towards what we want, which is um, trust and accountability within our groups having our corporate goals, um, correct our, our mission, our vision, right? Where are we going? The inherent, why, why are we here? Right. And then having the corporate goals, the sub goals, the personal goals tied to performance, right. Building that sort of structure took Mm -hmm. a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And now with that, I've never been more proud or happier to walk into my organization because the team is aligned right? They, they care, right? And they, they keep each other accountable. So no longer is everybody answering to me, right? As a fact, matter of fact, I'm like, I'm, I'm 
knocking on their door going, hey, can I help you with anything? Like, can I do something? I'm like, I'm kind of bored. Let me do a thing, right? They're like, dude, get out of here. Everything you touch, you know, screws up somehow. Stop touching stuff. We got this, right? So that's, that's sort of what I learned is really important from. Yeah, yeah. bring a lot of good nuggets too. It's coming back to awareness, really. Like, I think most successful people that we have in the podcast so far has a, has a really high sense of awareness. Like, they're really aware of their actions, mm-hmm. what what makes them unhappy, and you know, credit to you. Like, you took action again, and you you're just like, hey, this is not working. I feel really unhappy. How can I make this better? Because when you read a lot of books and talk to a lot of different mentors that reach this type of level, you kind of just leave on for leave for a new venture. You know, mm-hmm. just leave the company completely without fixing it. Whereas you have the courage to go in there and you're like, okay, I'm going to blow up the infrastructure to make sure that it's going to be well run. The culture is a lot better. And that takes a lot of courage, man, because mm-hmm. essentially you're blowing your business model. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And on top of that, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners, they are reluctant to admit that they need help within mm-hmm. their company. You know, it's like it it's, shows like a sense of weakness if you go seek for help in order to, you know, improve your CEO capabilities, but you actually seeked for help, you know, and you were able to acknowledge like, okay, I know there's a problem within my company. I know that the culture is not there. Mm-hmm. And for you to go out to the CEO peer group and for you to, you know, recognize, okay, th- these are the problems and I need help with this and that, that was able to translate to your knowledge of like how you can communicate better with your, your employees, you know, and I'm very curious. So, after the CEO peer group and after, you know, Stanford, did you have to let anyone go yourself or did it, did it just like naturally happen and all of the non-accountable people just left naturally? It's, it's, you definitely, um, it's a little bit of both, right? So when you, when you let them know that, Hey, we're, this company is going to be built around accountability, mm-hmm. right? Like I said, immediately the people that are allergic to that will fall off. I had people leave mm-hmm. within a week, of dropping that org design, wow. right? That was accumulate accumulation of, you know, sort of the focus on, on in, in Stanford and, and all this, like, this is how I want it done right. uh, in terms of keeping it accountable. And immediately within a week, like three people dropped. Wow. And then you'll see people try to hang on, but if you just keep focusing on those points, trust and accountability, yeah. um, they sort of, they sort of take care of themselves for you. Right. Right. So the most important thing is like, all right, have your performance metrics of them, have them make sure that they know what their goals are trying to do and then back it with accountability. They'll tell you if they should be here or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause it gets hot. That seat gets hot. If you're non-accountable and you're missing your marks, it gets real hot. Yeah. And normal people don't want to be there. Definitely. And I, I, I can totally relate to the team building aspect of things and being a leader, especially a CEO, especially a founder too. Cause you feel like, you're obligated to dip your hands into every single department, mm-hmm. but in actuality, you're doing more harm because this is outside your expertise. Like mm-hmm. you, you may or may not know a lot about marketing, finances, and mm-hmm. you know, like business models that we're unfamiliar with. So we bring the experts. So let the mm-hmm. smart people do their thing. Yeah. The most ironic part is that when you're running a successful company with great culture, it's built on trust, really. And without that trust. Like you're not going to get any accountability out of your team or you're not going to live up to their fullest potential because you don't trust them. Or ironic thing, it's like when you trust them, you do less work to the point where you're, as a founder and CEO, you feel hella guilty because you're like, 
dude, I'm not doing, doing anything, <laughs> you know? But that's the ironic thing, because now it's like, okay, if you do that, you're no longer micromanaging. Mm-hmm. And they're allowing people to flourish in their creativity, but at the same yeah. time, you're building it in a way where it's really scalable, and it's up to you as a founder and CEO to keep these people aligned into your vision. Mm-hmm. What these- people, people love that. People want to be able to have that ownership. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you don't give it to them, like, you're really just stifling their growth, and that's like not a good leader. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And that kind of goes back to what we talked about, head in, hands out, right? You better know what the hell's going on. You can't just go, yo, autopilot, you know, right. without understanding exactly what's going on, but not get in the way of them running because that's exactly. really your goal, right, to get them but, to start running. Yeah, 100% yeah. agree with that statement too because you bring in a lot of smart people. Most of the time they have so much energy that literally they're just shooting in different directions. Yeah. yeah. As a leader, you just have to like gather them up and be like, all right, guys, shoot the energy in one direction, please. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's all that leadership work is around sort of your your mission and your corporate goals. Like a lot of my time is spent around crafting goals and the aligned vision of where we're going. That's really mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then let the team do the thing. And you just support them, right? Whatever yeah. it is that they need, you try to give to them as long as it's a good idea, right? Not a blank check. But as long as it makes sense, like you support them, then that's bottom up leadership. I do have to drop one uh, book that I think would help a lot of people listen to this. Uh, So we actually work off of the uh, Patrick Lencioni five dysfunctions of a team model, Mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's a really quick read, less than 200 pages. They, he wrote it in the uh, format of a story. So it's super interesting to read. And there's this model at the end that will help guaranteed uh, any team reach their results, right? It's a, it's a triangle. The bottom is trust, right? You must have trust. And they all built on top of each other. You must have the last thing in order to get to the, the next thing or else you just go back. It goes trust. It goes healthy conflict, right? To be actually be able to like argue a point without getting mad at each other. And you can't do that without trust, mm-hmm. right? Once you have that, then you guys have to be able to commit to what the goal is as a team, right? Mm-hmm. If you can't do that, right? If you don't have healthy conflict, you can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. Then you drop back down. After commitment is accountability. If you can drive everybody into accountability, right? And everybody's pulling in the same direction, the last is results. And the cool thing about results is you actually don't have to uh, work for results. If you knock out the first four, you automatically get to results, right? It's a really simple framework that people understand. And once they understand, they go, oh, shit and everyone's talking the same language, mm-hmm. right? Then they can self-assess. And then that's where peer accountability starts, Definitely. right? And then now you can drive that message because they have a framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 100% agree. And you feel the energy too when things are going right. And you're like, yeah, this is a great positive flow. Things yeah. are going really well. And you start in that way, when that happens, you as a leader typically become more innovative. You know, wow, like things are moving really straight. Maybe we could take in more complex projects. And you have the time and the flexibility to think about how we can scale, right? No one is 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 finally, like no one is actually coming to you for all the the answers. And they're communicating with each other. The nitty gritties of the day that just weighs you down and distracts you from a bigger vision. Yeah, Um, absolutely. At the same time, just full disclosure for everyone listening, being CEO and founder is not easy. (laughs) (laughs) To get to a level where you can trust people to do their work and innovate and take care of their own department is extremely difficult. And it's not like a one-time thing where it's like, oh yeah, the department's working. 
and will probably last for a couple of months before it burns again. You know? yeah, you're absolutely right. It's yeah. a constant, constant like evolution, right? Because you leave it alone for a second and it's going to, you know, oh, it'll start like losing steam. Yeah. Right. That's why, that's why a bottom up leader is constantly always just adding fuel to that and supporting, right. To make sure everybody's like on point. Yeah. Right. So you got to be on your game yeah. straight up. Always. This is a full time gig, even on the weekends as well. You just sit there eating dinner, watching TV, like, dang, this apartment is starting to fall apart again. <laughs> I got, I got one day to do that. That's Saturday, Sunday, Sunday. I'm, I'm, I'm at least a half a day p- preparing for the week work yeah. week. Right. But I mean, it is what it is, right? Like if you eat, breathe, live, like you, you're absolutely right. You're going to have to commit to this thing a hundred and 10%, right? You got to live, breathe. This is your baby, right? And it is what it is. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of evolution, you know, we've been going through so many changes with our social climate and COVID. I'm very curious, you know, I, I know there should be a lot of people, you know, purchasing poker tables, just, you know, creating those relationships with their family members and stuff. How have you seen your company and the culture in your company change since COVID has happened? Because I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of fear within employees and just people in general, business owners in general. And so have you had to really up the game in your leadership skills and, you know, has the company culture changed in any way since COVID has started? That's a great question. And before I jump into that, um, talking about organization development, I do have to give you guys a huge shout out just for Asian Hustle Network. I, I saw it from the infancy and what it's doing. And you guys, I see that you guys are also growing and maturing and evolving as leaders. What do you do with these tens of thousands of people that are waiting for this thing that they all gravitate towards, right? So I, I, I know that that's no easy task. So much props, much love to you guys for, for building this thing out because it's really cool to watch from the sidelines. Appreciate that. Thanks, George. Right. So um, in regards to your question, um, during COVID, um, it's, it's pretty interesting because uh, usually this is our slow season. Uh, people are out vacationing and doing stuff. So in terms of sales, it's actually um, sort of we're seeing increased numbers. Not that it's, it's a good thing. It's just a, the thing. Yeah. Right. Um, other other industries, um, you have hard hit industries and you also have uh, winners coming out of this thing. The, the bike industry, for example, is like freaking bananas right now. Right. Um, one of our um, consulting clients, uh, they they are going to three X their revenue. Um, they're, they're a pretty large bike company down in Southern California um, and their sales literally just went <laughs> <laughs> right absolutely off. they can't keep anything in stock apparently shimano right now that makes the components they're back ordered into 2021 there's like just no bikes available period in the u.s mm-hmm. right so there's some winners and losers shaking out of this thing but um in terms of what we had to do uh what i had to do in terms of adjusting um you know, it was really, you had to, you had to move quickly on, on how to manage and organize your uh, organization when everybody is virtual and works from home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So immediately we went to work, we created our virtual commandments, which is how we show up, right. An agreed upon set of how we show up as a group. Um, because I want to give you you know, I'm going to give you the, the freedom and the, you know, to work from home. I don't want to, I don't want to micromanage you, but what are some of the things that we agree on as a group, right? Around accountability, around visibility, around trust, right? Mm -hmm. 
And they came up with that as a group. I just facilitate. A lot of my work now is just facilitating them to pull the answers that they agree on, right? Because it's not a top-down thing. It's, it's what do we all agree on? And if this aligns to our values, okay, cool, right? Everybody, is that it? That's the agreement, then we go from there, right? So after making that virtual commandment of how to work from home, really hasn't been much issue. We haven't seen productivity drop. Um, we have a small crew uh, here in the warehouse still fulfilling stuff. They're, they're doing their six feet and they're, you know, it's a big warehouse, so it's, it's not that many people in there, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But the e-commerce team, they're all remote and it's all good. Everyone's healthy, everyone's just staying safe. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're actually just working really hard because um, right now there are a lot of opportunities out there in this uh, home gaming space. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, that's all. It all goes back to your leadership skills. So, mm-hmm. and people just embracing the new normal. You yeah. know, I think given the pandemic situation, there's going to be a lot of demographical changes because people are figuring out that productivity right. doesn't mean that you have to be in the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, something for all, all of us to like sort of readjust to. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that I mean, at the beginning of it, I think they're still sh- uh, shaking out what the new office like standard office layout is going to be right it used to be open open space with you know uh community seating like that's now got to change and do you keep you know the same amount of square footage or do you downsize like there are a lot of like considerations and and questions that uh business leaders um have to figure out right now but i kind of love it because we were sort of going in this direction anyway i my dream was to build a e-commerce company where um you know, you, you had more flexibility. Yeah. Right. Um, so this just kind of, you know, facilitated a little bit faster. I think all, it doesn't matter what you do right now, you better have a direct to consumer e-commerce strategy in place like yesterday. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are the people that are going to survive people that are still trying to figure out, you know, like, the old way of pre-COVID way of doing business, I think you're just hanging on and it's a matter of time. Yeah, you have to readjust to different times, especially during this time where it really forces everyone, not just entrepreneurs, to like rethink their life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a lot of people right now are thinking, should I continue staying in a big city? Because now the remote remote work is normal, normalized pretty soon. Like, do I have to stay somewhere super expensive or uh, how do you always constantly have to think about how you're going to pivot to different times too, because mm-hmm. every single downturn, there's always an up, upswing and positive pivot that you can always make. And if you're For stuck sure. one way, you're going to fail. And that's just not during a downturn. It's like anything, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're facing disruption. What do you do? You have to pivot. So, you know, that, that's a great, that's a great segue to something I do. I do want to throw out there for, uh, that might be of some value for the listeners. So, you know, before you pivot and before you know how to pivot, um, I think it's very important uh, for companies, um, it doesn't matter what size, to understand sort of your core value discipline. You got to really understand what you do extremely well, mm-hmm. right? And then you can leverage that as an advantage, right? So generally there are three like core value disciplines, right? It's either you are customer intimate right? So you're very customer facing, um, or you're operationally excellent, right? That would be something like an Amazon. That would be something like, um, you know, like a Amazon or or you would be, um, the third one would be innovate innovation driven, right? So you would be like a Tesla, 
right? right? That's how you create your value, right? You have to understand because not every company can do everything well. Yeah. Right. So I'll just give a quick shout out. So my girlfriend runs a plant business, pearlsplants.com. If you want some cool plants, <laughs> go to pearlsplants.com. But what she does, <laughs> I love that plug. really good plants. Um, but what she does is for every order, she'll write a handwritten note. Mm, yes. Right. Which is like freaking bananas. Some of the plants are like, you know, not, not too expensive, right? They're like five bucks. I'm like, you're going to spend five, you know, you're going to spend time to write a note for a $5 plant. She's like, that's what I do. Right. <laughs> that's, that's customer intimate. Right. right? Yeah. Now operationally excellent is like, I can get the thing to you the next day. That's Amazon prime. Right. Right. That's, that's doing things like just super efficient, better than your competitors. Right. And innovation driven is you always come out with the new shit. Right. Right. So if you're talking about adjusting to COVID, you, and the secret here is this, right? So your core value discipline, you only have to be really amazing at one of those three things. Yeah. You pick one. Is it innovation? Is it customer uh, intimacy? Or is it op- OPEX? Right. Yeah. Pick one. Be the best at that. And then you just need to be average on a second. Mm-hmm. That's it. Right. Nobody can do three things. Well, it's impossible. Right. So you do one thing really well and you do the other thing above average. And the third thing you just kind of like, eh, you know, right. But you, that's how companies. So if you know what your core value discipline is, then you can now understand, all right, what are, what are the moves that I have post COVID and how do I leverage that? And you will be in a position where to capitalize because there's going to be a lot of companies going out of business. Yeah. Right. So the more that you know where you stand and where your value is, that's going to keep you in the best position like coming out of this thing. 100% man. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that statement. We're so aligned with that side. Yeah. Love that. And so, you know, what is, what's one advice you can give to an aspiring entrepreneur? We have a lot of entrepreneurs in AHN who are in e-commerce. And yeah. so, you know, I'm really curious what's one advice you can give to an aspiring entrepreneur um, it can just be in general or it can be in e-commerce. Mm-hmm. No, I'll, I'll, you know, this is great. So in general, it, it, it both applies, right? So the, the mental, the mental game of being an entrepreneur, I think, I think that is something that only people that have gone through it understand this emotional roller coaster, mm-hmm. right. right? And um, this, this format was first taught, taught to me by Cameron Harold. He was the COO of a 1-800-GOT-JUNK, one of the, the yeah. amazing speakers, right, that you're going to run into, Google. Him. Um, but he came up with this, like, thing where it's the, emo- the, the entrepreneur's roller coaster, right? Yeah. So at the bottom, right, you have uninformed optimism. That is, the sky is all blue. I came up with this idea. It's going to be fucking amazing. I'm going to make a billion dollars. It's going to be freaking awesome. And then you work, 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 right? <laughs> At some point, some issues are going to come up that you didn't anticipate, right? Yeah. And it will sideline the shit out of you, Yes. right? And then now your uninformed optimism turns into informed pessimism. <laughs> right, right. You're going down. You're like, oh shit, no, it didn't work out the way that I thought. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then you're going to start crashing. And at the very bottom of that crash is a point called the crisis of meaning. You're like, holy yeah. shit, what did I do? Right. And at crisis of meaning, you have two. You have two directions you can go. You can either crash and burn, keep going this way, or you'll figure it out. 
right? Mm-hmm. With a peer group or whatever, talk to your friends, you figure it out mm-hmm. and you, you realign. And then now it starts going back up and now it becomes informed optimism. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so this is this loop, right? Happens over and over. And within this loop, it can, there can be a roller coaster within a roller coaster. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you just understand, like, this is how, what you got to be, um, you're going to be in for, inform, uninformed optimism, informed pessimism, crisis of meaning, and informed uh, optimism, right? If you know this, you'll actually know how to make decisions when you feel that way. When you feel like, holy shit, it's helpless, shit's crazy, you better not make any large decisions. Like, just chill the fuck out, go on a vacation, go hide under your desk, whatever, right? <laughs> but don't be making any decisions. But on the converse side of that, if you if you have, like, uninformed optimism, you better not be signing leases, you better not be taking out lines of credit, right? Because what you're, you're thinking isn't what it is, mm-hmm. right? So just know that there's this roller coaster and it just repeats over and over. So that's why like, you know, entrepreneurship is so sort of manic and so, so bipolar. One day you're like, Oh my God, I'm king of the world. And then the next day you're like curled up in a ball on the floor. Right. Like <laughs> literally I have my spots on the floor. I, I agree. Right. right. If you haven't curled up in a little ball on the floor, then I, I call your bullshit. You're not, you're not, you're not for real. Yeah, yeah. yeah, love that. <laughs> very, very sound advice. All right, George. It was amazing learning about your story, hearing about your entrepreneurial journey. Um, for our listeners, you know, in order for them to learn more about you, how can they reach out to you? How can they uh, find out more about you online? You know, I'm just going to throw it out there. You can uh, just email me direct at uh, george at bbopokertables.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, You know, I'm I'm here to answer any questions. Um, And what I'd like to, here's a little selfish plug. What what I'd like, anybody that is interested in sort of e-commerce or any of the topics that we talked about today, shoot me a line. Um, If there's something that we can do together, um, you know, I'm always looking for great talent, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's probably the only thing that I want to plug. Um, but I'm here. Shoot me a, shoot me a message. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to reply. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Thank well, you for being the show. George. Yeah. Thank Appreciate you so it. much. Was, for taking this the was time fun. Show. Yeah, it was really fun. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll, we'll be able to sneak a drink in or, or get a Korean, you know, bite again at the uh, Korean restaurant. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, George. Cool guys. Cheers. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.